This is a special episode of the 26th, an MCB podcast. This episode is being released for National Lawyer Wellbeing Week and comprises a series of conversations between Robin Morades, Executive Director of the North Carolina Lawyers Assistance Program, and Robert Ingalls, founder of Law Pods and a Mecklenburg County Bar member. This episode fulfills the one-hour mental health and substance abuse CLE requirement in North Carolina. These conversations focus on mental health and the practice of law and cover topics including the stigma surrounding mental health in the legal profession, the significant progress made to destigmatize mental health discussions, the unique mental health challenges faced by lawyers, the pervasiveness of anxiety in the profession, the negative and surprisingly positive effects the pandemic has had on lawyers, resources available to lawyers, and a discussion about changing practice areas or leaving the law entirely. To earn your one hour of mental health credit, please email Lisa Armanini at L-A-R-M-A-N-I-N-I at mechbar.org. And we will also put that email address in the show notes and email her at the conclusion of the podcast with your name, state bar number, and the passcode, which will be given during the episode. So listen for that. Your attendance will be reported to the North Carolina State Bar, which will in turn bill you $3.50 for the CLE fee. This is the first time we're offering CLE in podcast format, so we welcome your feedback. All right, Robin, thanks so much for joining me here today. I appreciate you taking the time out for us. And when the bar reached out to me to be involved in this, I was really excited to try to put something together with you because this topic is very important to me. It's something I've never spoken on in a CLE capacity. I've talked to a lot of lawyers about it and I've talked on other podcasts about it, but I appreciate an opportunity to speak about this because the topic of mental health in the law is very important to me just as someone who struggled with mental health and wasn't really able to even put a name to it because ultimately, honestly, I was scared from a personal perspective and just from I didn't want other people to know that I had issues. And then inside my own family, I've had substance abuse issues. And so this is a topic I'm maybe excited is the wrong word, but um, I'm happy to be able to be involved in this and, and putting this together. So thanks for taking some time out with me. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So the first topic I wanted to talk about was the stigma in the law around mental health. And I remember when I was applying for the bar exam and filling out some of the questions, one of the things that stuck with me was, I'm really glad I don't have a history in mental health because I felt like there were numerous questions that were asking me, essentially, do you have mental health issues that we can now exclude you from taking the bar for having? And that kind of scared me. And I think it probably also bled over into my own personal experience when I felt like I was perhaps facing some mental health issues of, oh my word, I can't tell anyone lest something bad happens. This is a really hot topic right now in the world of lawyer assistance. You hit on something really important. When you were talking about the bar application, I don't know if you're aware, there was a DOJ case that was brought against the Louisiana Bar and the Board of Law Examiners in the Supreme Court that the nature of the questions that they were asking violated the ADA. And so the case was never litigated. They came to a settlement around it, and the entire nation changed its questions. And what has been 
evolving as a discussion out of this is that under the character and fitness criteria, the stigma associated with mental health issues is deterring law students from help-seeking behavior. And law students are in law school and they're having anxiety around law school because law school, in our law school brochure, our opening line is, you're having a totally normal reaction to a very abnormal situation. There is nothing wrong with you. There's something wrong with the situation that we're in as law students. And so what's happening, though, is that law students want help, they need help, but they don't want to ask for help or get help because they're afraid of what's going to come out on the bar application. The pendulum swings wildly on this front, and right now we're in a pendulum swing where some states have actually done away with the mental health questions altogether to encourage help-seeking behavior amongst law students. In North Carolina, the questions have been completely redone now. So the questions that I think you told me that you applied for the bar in 2011, those questions are no longer. When this case happened a few years ago, North Carolina adopted the questions that were approved by the DOJ in the settlement. And the questions focus much more on conduct. Have you gotten a DUI? Have you ever been fired from a job? It's more related to inability to perform or bad action conduct related to things, not just do you have this diagnosis. It's a bit of a moving target right now in terms of what's happening across the country. But the reason I think that our lawyer assistance program in North Carolina has been so effective and is so well-received. I sent you some articles. I hope you had a chance to read them. But I, I think you can get from some of the tone in my articles, I don't really see much of this as true mental illness. I see a lot of this as the human condition and a very psychologically healthy and normal reaction to a very abnormal situation. As we often say, if you have been trained, you're a trained neurosurgeon and you've got a patient lying on the table in front of you and your job is to try to save that patient's life and you're bringing all of your education, all of your training, all of your skill to bear on trying to save that patient's life, that's extremely anxiety producing. Now in law, the added feature is you have another neurosurgeon on the other side of the table, equally trained, equally skilled, equally passionate, whose job it is to try to kill that patient. And that's anxiety producing. And so a huge amount of what we see at the lawyer assistance program, honestly, a lot of it is not chemically chemical imbalances. It is after years of grim determination fighting it out, but a lot of it is a very normal human response to extraordinary stress and nerve-wracking situations. And so there was sort of a, a phased evolution of lawyer assistance programs. And before I got here, the focus on destigmatization was about diagnosable illnesses, medical conditions, and I still think that that all holds. And 
a huge amount of what we deal with is just the human condition. It's not illness, truly illness. Some of it is, and some of it is helped by medication in the early stages, but a lot of it is just getting some coping mechanisms, getting some tools, having the situation normalized for you, (laughs) that you're not crazy, you're not weird, you're not bad, you're not, you know, none of that. But the bar application is an interesting entry point into that conversation. Well, that's great. I mean, that's that's a welcome update that I was unaware of that they're changing that because it did, I mean, I think it did inform the way I approached that situation. And from, you know, in the past years, having after having left the law, I've talked to other people who had the same, a similar experience of they were struggling with their mental health, but they didn't really want to tell anyone even if they had told people in their family and were getting help from a therapist in private, they didn't want to tell their colleagues. They didn't want to make it an issue that would perhaps get them in trouble with their careers. And certainly, I mean, I think that I'm someone who never reached out to the lawyer's assistance program. And that was part of the reason is I had this fear that if I put myself on the radar, I would now be on the radar. And that was a little scary for me. And that makes me think of in the article, you were discussing a video that likened it to a zebra running from a lion. And the zebra is obviously in fight or flight. It's doing the flight part. And that zebra is only in that moment of you know intense adrenaline for a few minutes. And then it's over. One way or the other, the zebra either makes it or it doesn't make it, and that's over. But for the lawyer, that is a state they they can sometimes be in just around the clock all the time. They never get away or either get eaten. They're stuck there. Right. This is a chronic problem that we see in the law is this perpetual, never-ending fight or flight. Fight, really, because it's an adversarial type of process, particularly for litigators this never-ending hyperadrenalized state that is responsible for lots of health conditions, that fight-or-flight response is meant to be an acute, short-term, immediate body response. Our bodies are not evolutionarily equipped to handle that response as a chronic condition. And there's all kinds of health fallout from it leading to early death, bad outcomes, as we say, in the healthcare world. And what's interesting, intellectually interesting, hard to live through in terms of COVID, is that COVID for everyone, not just lawyers, but for everyone, COVID added a layer of fight or flight, hyperadrenalized, threat-based mode for everyone, the entire world. And we saw all kinds of interesting behavior from people who were really freaked out about the pandemic and still are. And I have some stories I can tell you from my own family that I will spare you. But what's very interesting from our program's perspective is that there were two wildly different responses. So for the people that we work with that are our volunteers and our clients who come to our support group meetings who are well-versed in lots of recovery-based tools, lots of cognitive behavioral therapy, lots of spiritual tools, lots of self-help, self-awareness type of tools, 
and used to getting a lot of support, they actually felt a huge sense of relief because courts closed. And they realized it was like we've been saying this to them for years and years and years, but they finally realized, like, oh, it's not me. I'm having a normal reaction to an abnormal situation, court, all the time. And when courts closed, as much as they should have been, quote, freaking out, it was all across our support groups across the state. People were really perplexed that the whole world was freaking out, and they were taking this huge sigh of relief. And they got a break in the fight or flight, the, the heightened fight or flight that the adversarial nature of the law brings. They got a break in that. On the other side, new cases that we got coming in, people who don't have a lot of experience with recovery-based tools or cognitive behavioral therapy, they were freaking out on steroids. And I remember trying to explain the fight or flight response to a lawyer and talking about, it's okay, you're in a hyperadrenalized state right now. And the response I got was, what are you talking about? I'm not in a hyperadrenalized state. Why are you putting this on me? Ding, we have a winner. You know, <laughs> I couldn't even normalize the experience for this lawyer because they were so hyperadrenalized. And it was very interesting. So a lot of our COVID CLEs talk about this adrenalized response and all of that. But it's just really interesting because the people who work with us already actually felt the reverse. They felt a lot of relief. And it was like, as courts started opening back up, they're like, here we go again. However, I will say more than one, not tons, but several lawyers that we work with are seriously rethinking, not so much leaving law, but how they practice law. And one of them has made a deliberate decision to get out of some high stakes litigation that she's been in for years and she's very successful at it, but to go into more of a transactional practice. And that was going to be my question is now that the zebras got away, are we going to start seeing more people reevaluate? I think so. I think we're going to see people. I read an article in the New York Times that was featuring it was about all different kinds of professions, but people realizing that they have more agency and choice in their life. The pandemic gave them permission. It's almost like it's this new movement, YOLO, you only live once. And one of the people that they featured was a lawyer, a litigator who decided to leave the law and realized he didn't like how he was living. And I think that that happened for a lot of our volunteers and clients is that they have more agency now that they realize they have more personal empowerment to dictate the type of life that they want to live and that they're more in charge of the way they feel than they realize and that circumstances are playing a huge part in dictating how they feel. I think it was a huge normalizing experience. I keep saying normalizing, but I think it's a huge normalizing experience that they realized, oh, there's nothing fundamentally wrong with me. So we've talked about the problems that lawyers have been facing, and some are deciding maybe now is a good time to change practice areas, Some, but some may still be very interested in pursuing the career path that they're on. For either of these people, what resources are available to them? Well, in terms of the lawyer assistance program, we assist lawyers with 
everything. I think that there is a misperception amongst the bar in general that we only help people who have drug and alcohol problems because the reason that there's this misperception is that a lot of the CLE that we do when we have our volunteers speak, many of them had a very public downfall. So they're willing to come forward and tell their story because everybody watched their story. But we have a ton of volunteers and clients who do not have drug and alcohol problems, who never would tell their story at the podium, and we don't ask them to. They are interested in helping other lawyers one-on-one. They attend our support group meetings, but we have lawyers that are recovering from compassion fatigue, anxiety, depression, ADHD, ADD, family childhood trauma, all kinds of stuff. Childhood trauma is actually a big one. There's a big movement in the court system right now for trauma-informed court and looking at adverse childhood experiences. But what a lot of people don't realize is that many lawyers go into law to go into social justice causes to try to rectify situations that they grew up in. And it is not uncommon at all for lawyers to be working in child welfare type of roles, whether it's DSS, guardian ad litem. There's a lot of pieces to how that whole puzzle fits together. And what many lawyers may not realize is that as noble an idea as they have about righting some of these wrongs, without proper tools, they are re-traumatizing themselves many times. And we talk about compassion fatigue and secondary trauma for people who don't come from a trauma background. And for people who do come from a trauma background, it can really up the ante emotionally for them when working in these roles. So we work with a whole bunch of lawyers on a whole bunch of topics. We have support group meetings that meet around the state. We have a clinical staff. We make referrals out to therapists, psychiatrists if needed, whatever is needed. We have no financial incentive or kickback from anyone we make referrals to. Our goal is to get people to the best resources for whatever situation they're encountering. The strength of our program is in our volunteer network. We have over 200 volunteers. That network is constantly sort of shifting. We have as many people drop off because they move out of state or do different things as we have adding on. But we normally have about a stasis point of about 200 volunteers across the state that are willing to pay it forward. And mentoring is invaluable in our framework. Our volunteers are the ones who help other volunteers and they say, I've been there too, with whatever the issue is. And many people are familiar with this model in the traditional 12-step kind of sponsorship role, but we follow that model for things that are not drug and alcohol related. So depression, anxiety, whatever it is, we have people that just talk to other lawyers and say, this is what it was like for me. Here's what it, how it showed up. Here's how it was in my professional life, my personal life. And these are some of the tools that I'm using now. This is how it's working for me. And there is this incredible network across the state. And lawyers, I love hearing stories of lawyers that run into their peeps at court or whatever. And it's like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know, it's the greatest secret society across the bar. It's just fantastic. 
Now, speaking of the secret society, if there's one thing I know as a lawyer, it's that anything I say can and will be used against me. If a lawyer is scared about seeking help, is that something they need to worry about, exposing themselves to career liability for seeking that help? Well, I would be happy to tell you, no. We not only have it by rule, ethics rule, we also have it by statute that anything I should be able to quote the formal ethics opinion. It's on our website, nclap.org. There is a confidentiality tab on our website that's on every page you hit. The confidentiality tab stays highlighted. In there, we have links to the formal ethics opinions that say that anything disclosed, we have a duty not to report anything that is revealed at the lawyer assistance program, including trust account violations. If someone has trust account violations, we say, you know, you better need to be prepared for a random audit and we'll recommend a lawyer if you need one. If it gets to that, can you put the money back? We have a duty not to report any of that information. Likewise, our volunteers and clients as agents of our program have a duty not to report. This is in the rules of professional conduct, informal ethics opinions, and we are also protected by statute that none of our documents are discoverable or subject to any subpoena. And so we've had lawyers that are very scared about their personal circumstances, that something's going to come out, and they have found safe harbor with us. And so that's all. No need to worry about that. LAP is a safe place. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a big part of it. I think lawyers are going to be very happy to hear that because I know that that's a fear. It's a fear I had. And I know that from talking to other people, especially people who have decided to leave law behind, that that was a fear that they had, that if they did go looking for help, that they were going to end up creating chaos for themselves. The number one reason in the ABA study that was conducted in 2016, the number one reason lawyers cited for not reaching out to the lawyer assistant. Something like 85% of the people who participated in the research knew about a lawyer assistance program, but the number one reason that they cited for not reaching out to a lawyer assistance program was fears of confidentiality and fears of stigma. Those were the two, and it was something like 65%. Those two reasons alone accounted for 65%. So I don't know if you have a direct answer for this, but just having addiction close to me personally, I know that this can be a tough thing for lawyers. So many of our events are structured around alcohol. When we go to conferences, there are open bars. A lot of networking events are held that are centered around alcohol. And I know that can be difficult for a recovering addict to even be in that type of environment. Do you have any wisdom for lawyers on how to navigate this and still be able to network? I don't know that I have a a bullet point talking point on this. What I will say is that I'm working with a lot of the big firms in Charlotte, a lot of the managing partners in the general counsels. They are very open to looking at some of these issues. And there is a lot of talk around this new generation of lawyers that is kind of not willing to buy into the old structure of how the law, the business of law is set up. And there's a lot of discussion of lawyers kind of wanting to forge their own path. And the firms are paying attention 
and trying to adapt. And there is more awareness around these issues around events structured around drinking, having alternative opportunities, offering mocktails so that someone can be walking around with a glass in their hands and nobody's going to ask what it is. You can have a mocktail or a cocktail. They look the same. And so I would just say that for many lawyers, particularly at large firms, there's increasing awareness around these issues. And recently, there have been associates who have said, who have contacted the managing partner and said, this is a problem for me. I'm in recovery. You know, lawyers I don't even know, like lawyers who aren't volunteers with our programs, with our program that say, I'm in recovery and I'm being excluded from these things necessarily because they're so alcohol centric. And managing partners are sitting up and taking notice and trying to construct some different type of things. I would say that for lawyers who are actually in recovery for alcoholism or other issues, we as recovering alcoholics have a bunch of strategies in place. So we already know how to navigate much of this because we talk about it. We, it's, it's strategically important and we talk about it with our friends in recovery and we have a bunch of rules of thumb like always take a friend, always bring your own car, walk around with a drink in your hand, nobody's going to ask you what it is and it can be just a seltzer water with a squirt of lime in it and nobody's going to know. These strategies have been long held and long used since well before my time as a lawyer, but if anyone is having trouble and is not yet in recovery, that's where we talk about sometimes what gets people to lap is an oops moment where they show their ass because they've had too much to drink at a firm function or at a bar event or something like that. And it's like this big oops moment. So I would say to anyone who's listening, if you've had an oops moment, chances are very strong. It's not your last oops moment and quit while you're ahead. (laughs) The nature of addiction and alcoholism is such that over any considerable period, it gets worse, never better. And trying to grit it out with grim determination and white knuckle it isn't a way to go. You need some tools and resources in place other than I'm just not going to drink no matter what today. That's not a really good way to live. There's a big misperception amongst people outside of recovery that recovery is hard and it's difficult. And if that were true, there wouldn't be anybody who's sober 10, 20, 30 years. I'm sober coming up on 34 years. I don't think about drinking at all, (laughs) you know, because I have all these other tools and coping mechanisms for when life gets hard or when life gets great. When another big misperception is that people think that someone's going to drink when something's really hard. Actually, I wrote an article about it. It's the reverse. It's usually when something's really good. And I remember before I went to law school, I was talking to a lawyer in AA and I said, do you ever feel like drinking when you lose a big trial? And he thought for a moment and he said, no, but I I feel like drinking every time I win a big trial. And we sat and we pondered that for a moment. And all we could think is that it's the imperial ego. Like I'm, I'm large and in charge. I'm invincible. Nothing can stop me. Hand me a drink. That the ego is very cunning in the way that it works. Yes, it is. 
Well, and with your mention of ego, it takes me to one of the articles that you wrote about the ego and the false self. Can you tell me a little bit about that? So the ego is an important psychological structure. We all have one. We cannot operate or exist in this world without one. So the ego in and of itself is not a bad thing. So please hear me on that. No one can live and operate in this world, much less the legal profession, without an ego, an ego structure. Where we get into trouble is kind of ego run wild or ego run rampant. And lawyers, I've mentioned this, that lawyers are particularly adept at conforming with social norms and with meeting expectations of larger cultural their cultural institutions. It's why we succeeded at law school, or it's why we succeeded academically that got us to law school and things like that. And so the false self is another word for the ego, but the problem is when we get overly identified with the false self, and we see ourselves as lawyers first, human beings second, this over-identification causes a lot of problems for us. It's the key component that causes problems with depression. And I remember a lawyer that worked with our program was having some very serious anxiety in court and very serious anxiety to the point of almost having panic attacks in the middle of trials. And we were talking about it at group. And what we realized is that he was feeling responsible for the outcome of the trial, which is a normal lawyer experience. Instead of having the right size of, I'm going to do my best, be a zealous advocate, and letting go of the results, it's like his entire worth was wrapped up around, if I win this case, I'm a winner. If I lose this case, I'm a loser. And that's really common. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, that's personal to me. I mean, I've I've lost cases where the person beside me who I'd spent months developing a relationship with immediately went to jail because we lost that case. And even if, you know, even if it necessarily wasn't my fault, it's still that weighs on on a person. It certainly weighed on me. And it's and then it happens, you know, not to say that like I'm out there losing cases all the time, but like it happens more than once where a bad outcome happens. And, you know, even if it's civil and somebody loses their house or some money, things like that, you, it weighs on you. It certainly does. It does. And there's a line that gets crossed though, because sometimes you just get bad facts. It's no statement whatsoever about your value or your quality or your ability as a lawyer. Sometimes you just get really bad facts. Yeah, those are the breaks. What's interesting about it is back to this idea of success, you know, a lawyer kind of being too big for their britches. In one of the CLEs I talk about, I think success is a greater risk for all kinds of unmitigated success, just success after success after success, never losing a trial, being president of this and whatever. Because you start to really believe the false self-image that you're large and in charge and that you're in control of everything. And then what happens if you do lose a case, if you do get bad facts and it's just the luck of the draw, you got these bad facts, 
But if you've built up this idea that you are invincible, then all of a sudden it's shattered and you're a complete failure. And the odd thing about it is that failure and losing sometimes, they're really important to connect us to our own humanity and a sense of humility. But the legal profession does not value humanity and a sense of humility. And so it's really a setup, and there's a lot that the profession does to reinforce the false self and have us all buy into their really illusions. I mean, there's going to be people who are listening to this CLE who think I'm off my rocker, but they're really illusions, and we have to connect to something deeper inside of us that's more human, more vital, more the true sense of who we are. And maybe for religious people, they call it the soul. You know, you can put a lot of different frameworks on it, religious, spiritual, psychological, whatever entry point someone needs to get there, I support that entry point. It is really funny how many times I do CLEs and lawyers come up to me and they whisper in my ear, I'm a born-again Christian and everything you said is totally in line with that, or I'm a Buddhist, and everything you just said is totally in line with that. Or I'm in therapy, and everything you said is totally in line with everything I talk about with my therapist. I'm like To me, I'm like, all right, I'm doing good. <laughs> Whatever entry point we need to get into it is the entry point for us, and I'm an equal opportunity entry point person. This is the second segment of our conversation with Robin Morades of the North Carolina Lawyer Assistance Program. Have you ever heard of Financial Panther? He's a former lawyer turned financial blogger. And I, I got introduced to him through the ABA magazine and I subscribed to his blog. But half of his posts, I ask for reprint permission because they're all focused on a former lawyer looking at mental health issues around needing to belong, meeting other people's expectations, all these things that lawyers struggle with. It's just remarkable. So I'm not afraid of the topic of, do you want to be a lawyer? Should you consider something else? I found my way being a lawyer, I was not a litigator. That was, litigation was not for me. And I was up at three o'clock. I had one case when I worked at a big firm. I had one case and both the facts and the law were on my side. And I was up at three o'clock in the morning stressing about when is the other shoe going to drop? What am I not seeing? So litigation was not for me, but I found my way in the law. And I, I call this bushwhacking your way into a practice that works for you. I ended up in a regulatory and administrative practice advising businesses, large regulated entities, healthcare systems, education systems, municipalities, and that type of law worked very well for me. I was in that job for about 10 years before I took this particular position. Now, did anything push you out of that job and into the position you're in? Because it's a drastic difference going from actually practicing law into you know the lawyer's assistance program. Was there a motivation behind that? The Great Recession of 2008-2009. Law firms were blowing up all over the place. My small niche firm was no exception to that. I had a pretty recession-proof practice. 
in terms of the clients that I did, but my partner did not. And it was just very difficult time financially for everybody. And I had been a volunteer with the Lawyer Assistance Program. And my predecessor, a gentleman named Don Carroll, had approached me about applying for the job because he was going to be retiring after 18 years. And at the time, I didn't, he approached a lot of people, not just me. But when everything started falling apart at my law firm, I circled back up with Don and asked if they had hired anyone. And he said, no, that the application process was still open until a certain deadline. And so I went ahead and applied. It was a direct result of the the Great Recession. Right. Some of us chose it and some of us, the circumstances kind of chose it for us. That brings up a point that I want to circle back to in a few minutes of 2008-2009 landscape, because that's when I started law school. I started law school in August of 8, I think. And then I think the crisis really took hold maybe a month later, something like that. And that was kind of scary. Mm -hmm. But a lot of us had ended up going to law school because, you know, why not? Some of us had ideas about what we wanted to do, but a lot of people went just as a continuation because you can do anything with your degree. And they landed out there and it turned out in, you know, 09, 10, 11, that the jobs that were out there prior were not there anymore. Yep. And I think that you bring up a really interesting point. I am guilty of it as well. I went to law school because why not? I didn't want to go to medical school. I didn't want to become an engineer or a PhD. And so law school seemed like the logical choice, but it is, that is the absolute wrong reason to go to law school. And I think that many people are going to law school today with no real concept of what they're getting into. And I certainly fell into that category. Yeah. A lot of people fell into that category and it was a talking point for, you know, when I was in college, at least from professors and just society at large, like go to law school, you can do anything with a law degree, just go. And the market was moving well, there was lots of jobs. And so people said, well, let's, let's do it. And, and we were out there taking loans that a lot of us are still very concerned about. Yep. I'm still paying off my student loans 20 years later. I'm still paying. <laughs> I think that in concepts, you can do anything with a law degree, but in practical reality, you don't realize the monumental pressure you're going to be feeling from your peers and the law school community to follow in the funnel that they push you through to get big firm jobs. The entire system is created the the way their schools are ranked, the employer numbers, things like that. You are pushed very heavily. And in one of our CLE talks that we have on getting lost in our own lives, I talk about lawyers are a self-select group of people that are incredibly adept at meeting cultural expectations. And we succeeded in undergrad and, you know, we succeeded academically. We met all these external expectations and law school just kind of heaps on top of that all these additional expectations And many people go to law school with the idea that they want to do social justice, public interest, and then all of a sudden they're graduating and they're going corporate to big firms. And there were some studies that were done in the 1960s and 70s looking at that phenomenon. And I tie in in the CLE, the mental health piece of it is that in recent years, they've been doing some studies 
about what happens in the conditioning process of law school. I won't use the word indoctrination. I'll just use the word conditioning. What happens in that process? And what they found is that there was a huge drop. So people come into law school and over time, there is an over-identification with extrinsic values, a loss of identification with intrinsic values, and a loss in the sense of perceived autonomy. And what does this really mean? This is keeping up with the Joneses in fancy social science language. We come into law school, someone else, it's like we get on a treadmill, someone else is turning up the speed and the angle of the treadmill, and we're just, we're so used to succeeding, we're just going to prove we're not going to get spit out the back end. We're just going to stay on that treadmill no matter what the pace, no matter what the angle and the slope, and it never occurs to us that we have the control panel right in front of us. And so this sense of the over-identification of extrinsic values is that someone else sets the compass heading of true north of this is what it means to be a success. And we all unconsciously turn our compass to that true north without ever intrinsically, you know, asking ourselves, is this what I want? Does this coincide with my values? Is this why I went to law school? It's very, very difficult for people that are used to getting so many perks from conforming, for lack of a better word, to then go their own direction. It's very, very difficult. And the loss in the sense of perceived autonomy is fancy social science language for we feel like we don't have a choice. That it's, The sense of perceived autonomy is I don't have a choice. I have to do this in order to succeed, in order to whatever. And so that's a very common experience that people have. It contributes directly to the mental health implications that we see in the profession. Sure. And like you said, people that come in with an idea of what they want to do, they end up on that same treadmill chasing a different version of success than they thought what success was going to be when they showed up. And one of the parts that really resonates with me coming through school, school was easy. And, and most people, I think, who find themselves in law school, I've certainly heard this story a lot, is plenty of them just kind of got by and, and made A's without yep. really having to put in the real effort. And I think they maybe thought right. they were putting in real effort and then they got to law school and they realized this is real effort. It's a very different game. And then another shock is you sit in your first day of law school and you look around and you realize that everyone's pretty brilliant here. And, right. and you start to feel, if you've built your identity around being one of the smart kids, that right. can be jarring because you have to Very really, <laughs> you're really trying. You're putting in all that effort. And for some of us, me very included, all that effort didn't automatically lead to A's at all. Right. And so that was, that was a frustrating realization. And the people around us seemed like maybe they weren't trying as hard. I'm sure they were, but they were, they were doing better. You're, and then you're in this struggle. You're on that treadmill now. You're like, oh my God, I have to do something. I've got to keep up. And then your version of success when you came in was, well, I want to take these classes and go in this direction. And then I won't use the word indoctrination, but we kind of move the goalposts for ourselves because when the people we're in school with start to have a very different idea of success. And then the institution, like you said earlier, of law seems to have a different idea for what it is that we should be doing. So then we can sometimes move those goalposts and redefine what success means. And obviously redefining what success means is healthy, 
in some ways. But when it comes to following what it is you wanted to do, if you're not moving them for the right reasons, for something that feels good to you, then it can create a lot of anxiety and stress in your life. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and that's, I, I didn't even necessarily mean to, to get us on the conversation of leaving the law and perhaps the law isn't for you, but it is certainly something that's close to my heart because I went to law school for what I thought were the right reasons. I mean, part of them maybe perhaps weren't. I grew up in a small town where, I, honestly, I grew up outside of a small town. <laughs> and the versions, the measures of success to me were, like you said, doctors, lawyers. People that were doing things like that were successful. That was success to me. And the idea that I could go do something like that, like if I did that, that would be it. I would consider myself a successful person if I became a lawyer like that. I don't know what, what I, I would do with the rest of my life because I would have made it. And so that was part of that driving force from a very young age. I was, you talked about people being interested in social justice and things like that. That was a big draw for me as well was criminal defense. I saw these people that were going to jail and being wrongfully convicted. As a young man, DNA was just starting to come out and people were having their convictions overturned who'd been in jail for a really long time. And that was really appealing to me. So those were part of the driving factors. But also part of it was I graduated from undergrad and I was like, I am not ready to adult yet. What can I do now to keep me from having to actually do something? And I'm good at school. I'll go do more school. That's a known quantity. I'm good at it. I can do it. And then, you know, like I said a moment ago, I got there and it, it was certainly a wake up uh, that sure. I was ill prepared for. But I attribute most of my success from a very young age to leaning into discomfort. I was a very shy child, which people find very hard to believe now because I never shut up. But it was very tough for me as, as a young person to engage socially with other people. I failed a book report in fourth grade because I was terrified to get up and talk about a book I had read multiple times in front of my class. And so I learned from a pretty young age that if I was going to have the kind of success that I wanted, because I knew I wanted more, that I'd have to figure it out. And so I, I developed a mindset of leaning into discomfort and it served me well. It got me through those presentations. It, it got me through so many different things. It got me through law school. It got me through those mock trials. It got me through the first jury trial. But it also, I think, was responsible for holding me back when it was time to, time to leave law practice because it got hard. It got overwhelming. And I, my default was lean into it. You know, you can mm. do this. You can overcome this. That's what you've always done. You're here because you're the kind of person who doesn't give up, the kind of person who leans into it. And I wasn't taking into account my own mental health. I yep. wasn't taking a moment and thinking, this is not just discomfort. This is negatively affecting my entire life. Like, I didn't say at the time that I have anxiety, but working through, you know, a number of years and finally talking to a therapist and examining my life, like I was suffering from severe anxiety, which I had my entire life. So that, that lean into it mentality certainly gave me another probably three extra years of law because I just wasn't willing to, like, I felt like I would be a failure. Like I would mm. be quitting and giving up. And then, you know, I, my parents had helped me go to law school 
so many different people were so valuable in helping me achieve what was my dream in that moment. So that was tough. You hit on so many important points. I hope I can remember them all. This idea of sunk costs, circling back to Financial Panther, his last column was about sunk costs. And because his mother asked him, do you think that going to law school was not a great idea? And he does a good conversation about sunk costs. And I emailed him and said, you know, can I reprint this? But what you hit on mostly that I'm honing in on here is that many lawyers do what I call kind of gritting it out with grim determination. The way you're describing it, it's not a, it's not an uncommon phenomenon for lawyers to be gritting it out with grim determination and muscling their way through and thinking that somehow they're going to feel better on the other side. And they don't realize that the years add up, the years of misery. And we do have a lot of medications available now for depression and anxiety, but you can only medicate misery for so long. There's got to be some other strategies, some other coping mechanisms. And I'm all about finding a life that works for you, finding a practice that works for you. My view is this is not a dress rehearsal. We all only get one life. But lawyers have an over-identification with their ego identity, and that's where those sunk costs can come into play, is if I'm not a lawyer, then what am I? I wrote an article called Weather Patterns, kind of encouraging mindfulness and meditation as a practice. and one of the stories I told in there is I was at a national conference and there was a young widow telling the story of her husband. They met in law school. They both got their dream jobs of first choice. And a few months into law practice, he said, I don't think I want to be a lawyer. It's not what I expected it to be. And he killed himself two months later. And it's like, this is not the typical suicides that you hear about where someone's totally burnt out after years of practice and compassion fatigue. And I postulate in that article, having not met the young man, that he was not depressed. He was disillusioned. And he couldn't face the reality of, I've just invested all of this money and all of this time, and this is not what I thought it was going to be. And instead of taking the risk to try something else with all those sunk costs, I guess he thought his only option was, you know, to check out. There was a study that we've talked about a lot since 2016. The ABA and the Hazleton Betty Ford Foundation did a study on lawyer mental health and well-being. And one of the statistics that does not get promoted a lot, but that I find most interesting is that in the survey, they did some research on who suffered from kind of chronic debilitating anxiety at that moment versus everyone who reported. So 65% of lawyers said that at some point in their legal career, they suffered from debilitating anxiety. And Kathy Killian, who's our clinical director, she thinks the other 35% of lawyers were lying because, and she doesn't come at this from a legal background. She is a clinician. And she says, the way that you guys are taught to think in law school matches up with the DSM criteria for anxiety. And it's like a check-by-check -check list of what you have when you have anxiety and what good lawyering looks like. You should be scared of and everything. I 
<laughs> exactly. Predict the worst for everything. And there's also some surveys that every job, every profession, they did this big research study. Every job and every profession does better if a person has an optimistic outlook, except for law. Law is the only profession where you will thrive and succeed better and do better in it if you have a pessimistic outlook. These are not great findings for a happy life, you know, and, and law school doesn't really prepare you for walking that line and figuring out how to do that at work, but not necessarily carry it over into your personal life. And the other thing I wanted to say about the anxiety is that what's interesting is Laura Marr and I have had many conversations. She's out of Asheville and she has a source called Conscious Legal Minds. You might want to invite her to a podcast. But she and I were talking about, she's not a therapist, but in her coaching for mindfulness and neuroscience resilience, she ends up playing the role of therapist. And we were talking about anxiety and she said exactly what you said. So many lawyers that she works with are having debilitating anxiety, but they don't want to call it anxiety. And she was talking with a lawyer and said something like, well, gee, that case would, you know, I imagine it would cause a lot of anxiety. And the lawyer said, no, 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 no. And she said, what would you call it? And he said, I'm thinking deeply about this. I'm very concerned about this, but he didn't want to call it anxiety. And so you had mentioned something offline about stigma and the fear of stigma. What's interesting to me about stigma, this is a topic I think we should circle up on with the, the questions you were mentioning about the bar exam. What's interesting about stigma is that there's stigma, but then there's fear of stigma. They're two different things. And fear of stigma is all over the profession. That is the number one thing that keeps people from asking for help. But people that have actually been stigmatized is like zero, zero percent. We have volunteers all over the state that they tell their stories publicly. They announce that they're volunteers and they never get anything but support or people coming up to them and kind of whispering in their ears saying, I really struggle with whatever. And the fear of stigma is different than stigma. And the actual occurrence of stigma, I don't want to say it's non-existent because you can't, you know, just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean it exists, but I haven't seen it. Thank you for joining us on this special episode of the 26th. The passcode for CLE credit is 26MH521. Again, that is 26M as in Michael, H as in Henry, 521. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to your feedback. Thanks for listening to this episode of The 26th. Head to mechbar.org to hear more from this podcast, suggest future topics, and review member resources. 